From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal, and this is a Vine Pair Podcast Next Round Conversation. We're bringing you these episodes in between our regular podcasts so that we can explore a broader range of issues and stories in the drinks world. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Maggie Harrison, who's the winemaker at Antica Terra in Oregon's Willamette Valley. Maggie, thank you so much for your time. Hello, Zach. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation um, because I think you're one of the winemakers in the Willamette who um, makes both some of my favorite wines, but also I think has a really interesting perspective on um, winemaking and the wine industry, um, which is always exciting to get a chance to to learn more about. So let's let's start here um, without uh, you know <laughs> without taking up the entire podcast, which we easily could do. Um, can you kind of give our listeners a little bit of your own backstory? Kind of how did you come to the wine industry, and then from there maybe make your way to the Willamette Valley? Yeah, sure. I mean, the reality is is that I never set out to make wine in the first place. In fact, I mean, I think part of the process of the way we make wine now is reflective of the way that I've always gotten from point A to whatever comes next. And gotcha. and that is that I, I, I've never really called out anything in advance. I didn't know where I wanted to go to university. I didn't know what I wanted to study. I didn't write like I I never um, was very good at charting course. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a strategist. I'm a, I'm a pretty good tactician. If you put something in front of me, I can work really hard. And so. Ultimately, I um, I didn't set out to learn how to make wine or or to make my own wine or to live in the Willamette Valley. I did what was the most useful thing to me and the and the most meaningful thing in every moment. And so, there was a moment where what was exciting to me was going to study conflict resolution under this incredibly talented conflict resolution specialist in DC. Mm-hmm. And then that led to me wanting to travel more. And that led okay. to me working in a restaurant because that was the easiest way for me to stuff my pockets with, with cash so that I could get on a plane more quickly. And when I worked in restaurants, the easiest way for me to make bigger tips is if I learned a lot about wine. And I, you know, I, I originally started learning about wine so that I could upsell, honestly, so that if somebody wanted to order something for $18 and I could sell them something for $180, I got a bigger tip and I got on a plane faster. But the better <laughs> I got at it, right, the better wines I got to taste and the more I learned. And it's just like, I mean, I, we all know, it's just like learning about literature or art or music. It, it is, um, you know, it is an actively expanding galaxy. And so as I started to learn little things, I got more and more interested. And eventually uh, that interest became became fairly dominant in just sort of what what I what I thought about. And so um, when I had sort of an, an inflection point where it was, okay, well what what do you really want to be doing? And I had to look at where, where my where my interest lied. I, I was really into wine. I mean the thing the thing that took greatest interest um, aside from you know making teapots out of ceramics was was wine. And so I have a I, I have a curious nature. And so I didn't just want to drink more of it, which I also want to do. And I didn't just want to sell more of it, which I also want to do. But I, I wanted to sort of get to the bottom of it. I wanted to I wanted to I wanted to get to the back of the house. And so I set about just trying to find anyone who would hire me and then will truncate the story, uh, you know, through a, a fairly shameless show of tenacity and a really giant lightning bolt of luck. Um, I ended up getting a job at, um, you know, what I consider the, the greatest winery in this country. And they they taught me everything. And I would have never left. I, I truly would have never, ever left. I 
um, I, I think that there are certain places in the world where you can work for the rest of your life and um, continue to learn every single day. And certainly I was placed in a position where there was no end to the amount that I could learn and no end to the amount of my growth, even if I was never going to become the winemaker. Um, and so I had no intention of making my own wine. And they they sort of pushed me out of the nest, baby bird style, and said, look, I know <laughs> you don't want to leave and we don't need you to leave, but wait till you feel flying. I swear, I swear you're going to mm. love it. Um, and so they did. They made me make my own wine. And I, I made the first two vintages of Lillian in their cellar, 2004 and 2005. And then I certainly had no intention of ever leaving Santa Barbara, California. I mean, what kind of dummy decides to leave Santa Barbara? It's pretty lovely <laughs> there, right? And especially someplace where it's sort of 72 degrees and the sun is shining, there are rainbows and unicorns. I mean, it's not a, nobody sort of hatches their escape plan from Santa Barbara. But then, um, you know, a, a friend of my my former bosses and mentors found this property in, in the Willamette Valley and, um, and asked, asked my old boss if he would make the wine. He said, no, I, I really can't complicate my life. I'm trying to simplify things. And then they asked if, if you know, they could have me instead. And I wasn't mm. in the room. And he said, sure. But it was sort of like horse trading. I mean, I wasn't in the room altogether. Wow. And so when I was offered the the opportunity to come be a part of Antica Terra and to, to farm the vineyard up here, I said, no. I remember like I, I had no intention of it. I had already started making my own wine and had my own winery in Santa Barbara. Um, but then they tricked me and uh, oh. <laughs> they, they flew me up to come take a look at the vineyard. And, um, you know, it, it just was very clear. Um, it wasn't that I wanted to make Pinot Noir more than I love making Syrah. It wasn't that I wanted to get out of the sunshine and go to a place where, you know, it's harder to make wine and there's more rain. It wasn't that I was so sick of living by the seat, right? Like, I, I, it could have been a Sirtico and Santorini. It could have been Zimbabwe Napa. It didn't. I just saw a place where it was so clear that all of the raw materials were there. Right? Nothing had been done wrong. It just needed more love and it needed more time and it needed someone to really lean in. And while gotcha. I really didn't learn anything technical about winemaking, uh, you know, in my in my assistant winemaking ship. That's not a word. Uh, um, I don't know what ship I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> I definitely learned how to work really, really hard. And um, and so I ended up up here simply because there was an opportunity for me to exercise all, all the skills I learned about loving things more and leaning in and making decisions about what's in front of you um, in a place that I could call my own. And so I, I've been here since 2006 caring for this little tiny piece of land up here. That's fantastic. And, and for those who are unfamiliar, sort of where in – uh, the Willamette Valley is the Antica Terra Vineyard. Yeah, the Antica Terra Vineyard is in the northernmost part of the Eola Amity Hills. Um, okay. So just outside the the town of Amity um, in the, the sub-ABA that is the Eola Amity Hills. Absolutely. And and again, I want to talk a little bit about your winemaking approach uh, in just a moment. But again, just for, for those who are unfamiliar, um, can you talk a little bit about the, the wines you do make and, and you know, sort of the, the spectrum of wines you make? Yeah, of course. And so Antique Terra is Chardonnay um, and Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. And I will say that, you know, I'm, I'm not from here. We just we just talked about it. I'm originally from Chicago. I moved to California so I could learn how to make wine and ended up here by, by accident. And so I think, you know, when we got here, I came here for a particular piece of land. But I was also very interested in 
understand, right? Casting a wide net and understanding this place as a whole. I think um, it is very important that I continue to gain on intimacy with this piece of land that is in my care for this lifetime. But also if I'm going to make wine in this place, I think it is my responsibility to sort of understand the intrinsic aesthetic merit of this place as a whole. And so I, I think it is typical and and understandable that somebody would land somewhere, plant a flag, say this vineyard is mine, and therefore this is the most important thing. But I think it is a it is a, a sort of um, uh, an act of putting blinders on, right? Like just because I own this piece and it's what I get to I get to control wholly and, and give of myself to, I would be the the vineyard itself would be lacking context unless I understood more of the greater story of this place. And so we very quickly started working with um, additional vineyards um, uh, all across the Willamette Valley. And I wanted to work with some that were most iconic and that had storied histories and that were in these places, you know, I I didn't know much about Oregon Pinot Noir when I moved up here. And so there, you know, I knew about the Dundee Hills. I knew about Shea Vineyard. I I knew certain things and I wanted to see what those things felt like. But then I also wanted to push out towards the edges and see what happens when you go as far west as you can get in the Willamette Valley, you know, ex-AVA, outside of any of the nested sub-AVAs. And what does it feel like out there? And what happens if you drive another two and a half hours south from the mm. southernmost sub-AVA? And what, is it, what does it feel like down there? And so um, we started signing contracts and, and creating partnerships with a bunch of vineyards. Um, and so today we work with 10 different vineyards, um, just creating Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, and we don't, we don't bottle those wines as an intellectual exercise just to show the difference, just so that we can deliver to our customers or sommeliers or, or, or people drinking wine wherever they are, um, sort of here is the difference between this vineyard and that. What we try to deliver is, is exactly what I said, right? A better understanding and a clearer representation of the intrinsic aesthetic merit of this place as a whole. We try to find in those places the synthesis of what is most beautiful from that season in our building, in our hands. Very interesting. So as far as I'm aware, one of the one of the sort of main ways that you kind of arrive at that final product is through is through a very kind of rigorous and and specific blending approach. And I want to talk about this because I think that oftentimes when people think about blending in wine, they think about blends of different varieties, right? They think about a Rhone blend, a Bordeaux blend. They don't necessarily think about the importance of blending a monovarietal wine. Um, And indeed, as you sort of mentioned, oftentimes there is a little bit of a, whether it's really true or not, there is an implication in certain wines. And I think Pinot Noir is is maybe the most, um, this is most true where, you know, it's almost as if no blending happens because you're, you're often presented with a wine that is looks like a, you know, a single vineyard, maybe a single barrel. I mean, probably not, but whatever. And, and so the, the notion that, that blending is not a, a, a crucial skill for a winemaker in, in working in a monovarietal wine. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to blending and, and kind of what it looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is a, it's a huge part of, of sort of the way the wines come to find their form. And again, right, um, the way that I learned how to make wine, you don't call out anything in advance, ever. You keep your head down all the time. All you're ever doing is looking at exactly what's in front of you and asking yourself, 
what's the most beautiful thing I can do in this moment? And then you, you do it right with fairly maniacal rigor. Cause, cause we all know that that, that is actually the hard part. You can say out loud, what's the nicest thing I could do, but it's typically the most tiring, the, the least convenient, the most expensive and, and everything else. And so you just trust that if you do that work where you're standing and let that lead to the next decision point, And again, you ask yourself the same and answer in the same way that you won't know where you're headed. You can just trust it will be the most beautiful version of what was possible in that year from those fields. And so by the same token, we don't go out and advance the wines and say, I make low alcohol wines. I make high alcohol wines. I use sulfur. I don't use sulfur. We're 33% whole cluster. We're hundred, not none of this. I make five wines. I make two wines. I make 17 wines. None of that is called out mm-hmm. in advance. And so instead what we do is we keep things um, at this very, human scale. We, we don't have larger tanks. We don't have large, we, we don't have tanks. We don't have larger fermenters. Everything is kept to um, a, a fairly small scale so that I have actual, you know, um, real intimacy with each fermentation, right? As it, as it gets larger, the, you, it, it creates sort of a, a level of remove between the human being and the, and the fermenting must. And so we have all these these little fermenters. And what happens is because we are making tiny little decisions um, 72 different times a day with all of these different fermentations, as they behave differently, um, so I treat them differently. And as I treat them differently, so they become more and more disparate from each other. And so what would typically happen, right, at the end of all of this, even after you've picked all of these raccoony little picks where you go out and pick a, a few here in the top of the hill there and the morning side of the vines over here, and then you, you know, have this, this individualized relationship with all of the different fermentations. Typically what would happen at the end of that is that those ferments, when they're ready to go to press, right, would move into a holding tank together. Then the must would go into the press together. And then if you're using the press wine, that press wine would go into the holding tank or into a different tank. And then from there, you would go into barrel. And so no matter what had happened before, by the time you move into that holding tank, you've then homogenized everything, all all of those little relationships that came before. And again, I can say that because it's not qualitative, right? Homogenization sounds bad, except for if what you've just homogenized is the greatest wine that's, you know, ever been made in the world, you're winning, right? As long as what you've made (laughs) is superlative, right? Diversity in nature is complexity, is strength. In a cellar, it doesn't really matter. It just yeah. so happens that for, you know, we don't, we don't settle any of our wines and we don't have holding tanks because I rely on a high level of solids in our wines. And so we're really okay. maniacal about how we get the wines to that stage in, in maniacal in our, in our sorting. And so what that gives rise to, right, is that we have, because we're going into press fermenter by fermenter and then not moving into a sort of a homogenizing tank, but going from the press directly into barrel into with 10 liter buckets moving in a little circle, we get this sort of tessellation pattern across the cellar where we're working with the same ingredients, but they take a different form barrel to barrel to barrel to barrel. And so if you were in the cellar, I could show you for sure the difference between Antique Terra and Shea, Shea and Temperance Hill, Temperance Hill and Hopewell. But what I could also show you is just the eight barrels that came from Antigua Terra block six last year. And the range of expression just from that block picked in a single day is unknowably vast. And so, you know, I've said before, it, it makes the it makes the seller seem like 
sort of a, a whole cellar full of fraternal twins, right? Everything is related by DNA, but everything is sort of unrecognizable as siblings. And so I then have a choice. How am I going to get these, all of these different, these different siblings into, into bottles, right? And I'm yeah. not, I'm not going to bottle every single barrel. There's maybe 150 different barrels of Pinot Noir. I'm not going to make 150 wines, although I would, if I thought that was the nicest thing that could happen. Okay. And so I, I think that typically there are two ways that this can happen. Either you say, okay, here are my very favorite barrels and I'm going to put them into this bottle and I'm going to call it my reserve and I'm going to charge a lot of money. And then here are my next favorite barrels and I'm going to put them into this bottle and I'm going to call it my flagship wine and I'll charge a little less money and I'll make more of it. And then everything else I'll put down here and that's sort of my entry level wine. And, you know, I'll try to try to get that in some programs by the glass. Um, that's one way um, that feels I, I take everything a little bit too seriously. It's not that I, I, I like I have fun, but I also I, I take everything kind of seriously. And so the idea that I am capable of doing reserve level work, but then that I would offer you something entry level or something less than and call it my, feels kind of absurd. I'm, I, I, um, I, ha I have too serious a nature for something that kind of, you know, market based verticality. And then the other way is that you say, okay, I work with nine different vineyards of Pinot Noir, and therefore we're going to have nine different bottlings. Okay. For me, right, while I understand that that sort of apes an archetypal ideal, and if we look at Burgundy or, or any of the places where we, we grew up learning about drinking wine, right, while it apes that, that archetypal ideal, also, um, it is more of an intellectual exercise. It is an exercise in exhibiting differentiation, and it takes us, you know, if not you know, one step at least, if not six or seven or 17 steps away from what was actually the most beautiful thing possible. And so instead, we blend everything blind. And so okay. what that means is that we take a sample from every single barrel of, in this case, Pinot Noir in the cellar. So it's about 150 barrels. Okay. And we put them into numbered sample bottles. So number one through 150. And we put those bottles all across a table or more typically, there is one on the table at a time and there's a big stack of sample bottles um, next, to, next to Mimi at the blending table. And we just move through them. And so on the first day, we taste through each bottle. We don't know what they are. I mean, we, we obviously know that we made them and they're Pinot Noir, but they're all randomized. And gotcha. we just take notes on each bottle. Um, and then for the next 10 days, we do it in three-day blocks for about eight to 10 hours a day. We just move through and start putting things together and taking them apart and putting it in every different way we can think of. Just looking for those harmonies that exist in the cellar and trying to find those synergies that exist and looking for those places where we can sort of find the ignition of, of beauty. And so you know, what will happen first, we taste each of these things, and we might find a pattern emerging. Oh, look, there is a certain selection of barrels that is hyper floral. And so we might take our favorite of those and put them together. And it's just it, all you're doing is moving from disparate pieces to putting something together and saying, did I just make that better than it was before or worse? And if the answer is better then what you just added stays in, 
And then you add something else and ask yourself again, did I make it better or worse? And you're just going from better to better, to better, to better, to better. And there's a million worses along the way. So you have to take that, (laughs) you're right. You have to take that out and try something else, take that out and try something else. And we're not working with whole barrel units either. And so oftentimes it will be, okay, now let's try adding barrel number, you know, 101. You add and you say, oof, let's try half of 101. No, uh, let's try a quarter of 101. Actually, let's lay out a range for ourselves going from zero, a control, to 10% addition of barrel number 101 in half percentage intervals. And, and the thing that you find, Zach, right, is that, first of all, it's it's not linear. So it's not like you taste the first one, you say, oh, no, I, I don't taste it all. No, I still can't. I don't taste it. Oh, there it is. It's barely there. Oh, now I really do. That might be getting close to enough. That might definitely be enough. That's too much. That's way too much. That's overboard. What you'll see is that all of a sudden at a half percentage, the aromatics crack open, but then at 1%, it closes up again and it gets really medicinal and bitter. Huh. And it, you know, and so there, there will be oftentimes three sweet spots. You might say, I like one and a half, seven and nine, the best, mm. but those three expressions are wildly different from one another. And you hate the ones that are right next to them <laughs> that are a half percentage away. And so the reason it takes us 10 days is because you really have to, you know, you have to, there, there's no way to sort of brain it out. Um, you know, it's not like being a deaf composer and you can just say, oh, I know what the timpani is going to sound like with the violin. Yeah. The, you know, one, pl- I know that you've done it before. One plus one never equals two. And so yeah. if you take something that has, as- you know, lacks acid and you find the barrel on the table that has really pronounced acid and you put them together, you make something hollow or clipped or roasted or just something else that yeah. you don't want to have. And so you just have to keep trying things, not only in different combinations, but in different tiny percentage changes of combinations until you can find the place where the wines rise. And so okay, I have to ask a question really quick. Yes, sir. Which is, is there ever an occasion where you taste a barrel and you're like, I don't want to add anything to this? Like, do you ever yeah. get there? Yeah. And so the part of not calling things out in advance is we also don't tell ourselves how many wines we have to make. You know, typically Uh when you get to a blending table, the sales team has said, okay, I need three (laughs) of these for the wine club. number of skews, yeah. Yeah, I need 2,000 of these for the trade placements in Europe, whatever. We, I don't let anyone tell us anything, right? And so we come (laughs) to the table. So for example, with the the Lillian wines, with the 2016 vintage, right? I make Syrah, I get to the table, I think I'm going to make a single Syrah. We made six wines. And so if the highest possible answer for any given barrel, a barrel and a half, whatever, was that it stood alone, we would bottle it alone. And and in fact, we have. Um, And so it's it's only at, we, we don't, we don't require ourselves to make any number of wines or to make a certain volume. There's no, there's no volume that's too small for us to be able to do something with it. And so we just free ourselves. That sounds really woo woo. Uh, we, but okay. we just, we just, you know, free ourselves from whatever restrictions the sales or the relationship with our, with our customers or our, you know, our distributors and importers have, and just look for what's, what's the nicest possible answer and trust that if we, if we stick really close to beauty, that all the rest of the puzzles will solve themselves. And, you know, they, they might not next year, but so far it's been, it's been working. Um, And so that the, the through thread, right. Is not that if you, you know, if you were able to have, 
whatever, Botanica on your wine list last year, you're definitely going to be able to get it again because I might make a thousand cases of something one year and 102 cases of it the next year. But the the through thread is, of, is one of intention and integrity and that if we put it in a bottle with our name on it, it was to our mind and from, you know, through through our angle on the prism, the loveliest thing that was possible. And mm. so, sorry, I know I talk way too much. No, uh, that's just, that, it's fascinating. They don't need to hear my voice. They hear it enough. It's very generous of you. So at the, the end of this whole process, right, to, to also to just to further the, the last thing you asked, at the end of the whole process, you know, each of the there are three of us at the blending table. Each of the three of us has our little laptop screen. Mimi has a pad of paper and I have, have laptop screens. And all we have is the name of the wine and then a long list of numbers of what we okay. have decided is going into that bottle. And next to that list of numbers is is another column of numbers, which is what percentage from that barrel or how many liters from that barrel have made it into this cuvee that we've chosen. I see. And so it's only when we're done that we have the, I don't know, the reveal, right? Where we gotcha. then can match up what was in those barrels and then what's going into the bottle. So that's the moment that I find out what the alcohol percentage is, what the new oak contribution was, what the whole cluster inclusion was, what the sapage is. And so there is always the possibility that we look and we say, oh my gosh, look at that. You know, Sarah's this year is 100% from Hopeful Vineyards, which we had a we had a wine this year that was 100% from Cool, right? Amazing. But I yeah. wouldn't, no matter, no matter how great my devotion to Mimi Castile, I wouldn't make a Hopewell wine just as an intellectual exercise to show you the difference, unless it revealed itself through blind tasting to blind blending to be the most beautiful thing that was possible. Well, and it, and it makes sense, especially given, I mean, this is just my own, you know, perspective on things, but even in a place like the Willamette Valley where there's, you know, now a 50 ish year history of make of Pinot Noir, you know, that it's a relatively short amount of time to reveal whether, the best expression of Pinot Noir in the Willamette is as it seems to have become centered around individual vineyards as the sort of ultimate expression. I mean, I think there are other producers maybe a little more um, who are maybe a little bit more formulaic, but, but who do perhaps not produce a lot of single vineyard wines and, and sort of see the value of blending across vineyard sites. But, but it's very cool that that I would guess is, is generally the takeaway from your wines is that, you know, the, the, as you said, the loveliest wines are not, often single vineyard. I mean, they, they might be, or they might not, but I think you're exactly right. I think, right. I mean, what is, you know, some of the things that we can take from the older wine regions of the world that, um, that I think are really honorable is that we, we have so much to learn, right. When you look at those delineations that have been made in Burgundy or Bordeaux or, or whatever in Barolo, it, you know, those took place over the course of 180 or 300 or 500 years. I mean, there's a, it's a long life. And here, you know, we're only barely on our second generation. And so it may be that Hopewell Vineyard should always stand alone, that it is by itself whole and complete. And the architecture and the structure of the wine is whole and complete and beautiful on its own. But to call that out without giving ourselves the opportunity to allow those places, those aspects, those orientation, that plant material, um, to call themselves out simply through their through their their quality, right? Through through what they are able to to represent, I think is squandering an opportunity to draw those lines 
in a way more meaningful than um, than sort of rushing to do it now before we understand the whole story. Absolutely. And especially as, you know, in many of these cases, many of the, you know, many of the vineyards that we're talking about or could talk about are themselves not even a generation old, you know, they're, they're planted exactly in the last decade, right. two decades. That's okay. Exactly I have one right. last, one last question for you um, yes, on this sort of general topic, which is, you know, a thing that we've been talking about a lot here at Vine Pair and, and just in the industry is, you know, the, the many ways in which climate change and the attendant, you know, whether it's heat, fire, um, you know, rain at unusual times, you know, all the ways in which this is impacting, of course, you know, human life, but also specifically the, you know, the beverage alcohol industry and, and wine, perhaps most acutely because of its sort of precarious nature. And I'm wondering, do you see this, this blending approach and your, your winemaking approach as I might see it as a little bit of, you know, no one is really insulated, but this, this sort of blind and very, you know, kind of, you know, I mean, again, you, you said you didn't want to get too woo-woo, that's fine with me. But, you know, it's this idea of entering the process with no preconceived notions and expectations. Do you feel like it perhaps gives you some insulation, maybe not even against, you know, wildfires or or extreme heat, but just the, the vagaries and variances of a vintage? I, that is the best question. And, and I'm probably going to make Thank you. even even more moonbeam and even more woo-woo. Excellent. But I, I think that is... I think that is exactly right, right? I mean, I think where we see things get so fraught or one of the places where we see things get so fraught in winemaking is when you plant a flag and you say, this is what my wines are. And I think that can be really treacherous when we are reliant upon mother nature to give us the tools that we need to to construct that every year. And so it's a little bit like if you say, I paint pears <laughs> and the pears yeah. in my painting are always yellow and the mother nature gives you blue paint, right? The things that you have to do, right? And, and we see this all the time. You, we see it in California in 2011 where it was preternaturally cold. And so I think that there was a wine to be made in 2011 that was so exciting and it was so different from what had been made in the, in the past or in, or in recent vintages. And yet what we saw oftentimes is people forcing their wines from this cooler vintage to try to look like the wines they usually make. And so if if you are going right by by not calling things out in advance, we give ourselves the opportunity to just pare away what's imperfect and just find the one true expression of beauty where, wherever that is. And I think this is where we get more woo. I, I think ultimately, you know, it's, it's deeply, it's deeply cultural as a, as a business and people who, who runs a business to say, look, if, if we really run it forward and, and if the answer is grapevines aren't viable, I know somebody's going to kill me for saying this, but what, but right. If we're, if we're talking about a place where things are getting warmer or fires become so pervasive that we're, we're no longer able to have a vintage, I think it requires of us. What are the true core values of, of the business and, and what does beauty look like if somebody took away grapes? And so to be building, right not just the the resilience but the dimensionality in your in the work that you do as a whole because for me I don't want this to sound fatalistic I trust that I'm going to get make wine for the whole of my lifetime now I'm pretty old and so my lifetime is shorter than some other people's but still I trust that I get to be 
elbow deep and knee deep in grapes for until, until my last breath. But if somebody took grapes away from me, then I would make something beautiful out of carrots. And if somebody took carrots away from me, I would make dinner. And I, I think, I think when we attach ourselves to a single plot of ground or a crop in that place or a way that the product is always going to manifest ourselves, we're setting ourselves up for, um, uh, you know, in that rigidity, setting ourselves up for a certain amount of heartbreak. And if we yeah. can, right, only look at, look, this in, in some years, this field might be good for, for polenta corn and in some years for table corn and in some years popcorn. And if we could just remain open to what is actually the highest possible use of our time, our energy in that field, that's where I think we stand a chance of getting to, to higher answers as a community altogether. Well, that's a, a, a fascinating and, and I think kind of wonderful thought and, and maybe a good place to leave things. So Maggie, I, I really appreciate your time. And as I said at the beginning, um, I'm a big fan of the wines. Um, that's not a, that's just a, that's a, that's a personal feeling. Um, if, you know, folks out there may, uh, may agree with me or, or not. Um, but we, we really appreciate having you and in, in your perspective on the podcast and look forward to seeing uh, what the, what the blending table brings forward in the years to come. I could not be more grateful that you just put up with me for that long. And I'm really so thankful that we got to talk today. Thank you so much, Zach. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.